Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, Will Hobbs, Head of UK Multi-Asset Wealth, talks with Camelia Wang, Investment Analyst at Albury Capital Management, about the unique opportunities and challenges of investing in China. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. So this week, the focus is on China, emerging markets, among other things. And we're very, very lucky to have Camelia, an emerging market expert from Fundhouse Aubrey Capital Management, to help us navigate one of the most important economies and investment opportunities out there. So, Camelia, let's get straight into it. And I guess let's start off with the scene setting. So the Chinese economy is clearly wrestling uh, with the popping of a giant residential property bubble. How do you think policymakers are handling this challenge? And what do you expect in the path ahead? Sorry, straight into the meat of it. But yes, your thoughts. Thanks, Will. That's a million dollar question, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I would try to condense my thoughts into a few Mm. points. I would like to start with some backgrounds, maybe, and then give a bit of color of what's happening on the property developer side and then on the consumer's angle. And maybe end with my thoughts on the property market. To start with, China has been growing really fast in the past decade, as we all know. Mm -hmm. And the property market has been one of the key growth drivers. The percentage of home ownership and urbanization rate, as a result, have increased. In the past, There had been a few housing cycles where the government has been able to smoothen the cycles relatively effectively with financial tools or policies. However, this time around, as property developers keep building, borrowing and building, the problem caused by the mismanagement of leverages and compounding with the COVID has proven to be harder to resolve than Mm. before. From property development's point of view, we've seen positive project completion rates, Mm -hmm. which is supported by the government, and this helps ease the negative sentiment on the ground. Mm -hmm. Uh, Measures such as the removal of the price cap of land sales were implemented. However, we've seen limited effect of these policies as only a limited numbers of property developers are willing to pay the premium rates for lands. At the same time, there had not been many new starts of property development. The recent introductions of the new urban village redevelopment program might benefit the construction industry and some developers. Mm. However, we will need to wait and see the effects of that. From consumers' point of view, various policies and incentives have been introduced. So for instance, the lower interest rates Mm. and the mortgage deposits and the removal of property ownership restrictions. However, these don't seem to tempt the consumers for now. Mm -hmm. Buyers are more worried about the further price reductions of their property and their own income prospects for now. So going forward, what will happen? (laughs) Um, I expect more policies and support are coming their way. Mm -hmm. However, the recovery of this property cycle is looked to be slower than before. Mm -hmm. With all that being said, I do believe there's a demand for properties, especially for younger generations in top tier cities. Affordability remain a key social issues And the government have been trying to control property prices from growing too fast in the past. Mm -hmm. To move things ahead, I believe stability of the economy 
and improving consumers and business confidence would be the keys. So during COVID, people who move out of the city will need to feel empowered and confident again with the support of good jobs opportunities to move back into the cities. And subsequently, this may help improve the demand of the property market. Mm, that's interesting. And so you mentioned sentiment there and consumer sentiment. I know you guys have done a lot of work on this recently. But in that context, given the weight of housing in private sector balance sheets, if house prices are falling, is the outlook for consumer sentiment a bit worrying on that front? Yeah, I was actually in China visiting companies and did a survey interviewing people mm -hmm. for two months. What I found was interesting in the sense that Yes, COVID and the weakened property market have impacted the consumer sentiment. After all, people were locked down for a long time and almost 70% of the household wealth is in their properties. However, when I talk to consumers on the ground, things are actually not that bad. Mm. A lot of foreign investors have concern about geopolitics and the economy, but Chinese people are just keen to get on with their lives after COVID. And it's important to remember that many of the Chinese population were locked down for much longer than the West. So what I've seen is that spending continues for most consumers. However, the scale and form have changed and I've observed divergence on spending behavior. Mm -hmm. What I mean is that, for instance, mass market consumers have focused more on purchasing good value products, mm -hmm. emphasis on experiences have become stronger and the desire for bigger ticket items have either delayed or reduced. At the same time, company offering good value really attracts customer. And I believe that's the same when the UK just restarted as well. Mm -hmm. We've seen good results from PDD, which is a company, an e-commerce company targeting price sensitive customers. And their third quarter result delivered 94% revenue growth. That's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, that's not bad. Um, that's not bad. I'll be happy with that. <laughs> on the other hand, I believe the population who are capable of buying premium products will continue to grow at around 3 to 5% each year. Mm -hmm. And that equates to 60 million people. Mm -hmm coming into the premium market. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. However, it is important to know that for consumer sentiment to really improve, I believe that job security and growing disposable income are really essential. In that context, sorry, and just a sort of follow up question on that employment context, we hear a lot about high youth unemployment in China. Is that something that you can see changing? And how do you, you know, you talked a little bit about the evolving younger consumer story. To what extent is that does that worry you, that high youth unemployment? Or is that something that you just think will fade over time? Or I think COVID definitely did not help mm -hmm. when it comes to youth employment. At the same time, there's geopolitical issues that impacts exports mm. and subsequently impacting factories, for example, the blue collar workers. I think it's very important for, in order to resolve this problem, businesses need to come back mm -hmm. to stimulate more employment. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to be a bit more patient yeah. for this to pick up again. Okay, that's interesting. Thank you, Camelia. We talked about some challenges and some opportunities within all of that. But you hinted at the idea that there's an enormous amount to get excited about with regards to China. You know, the economy has demonstrated formidable powers of cohesion on a number of fronts in the last sort of 
while high-speed rail, various other bits, you know, where, you know, developed world economies are struggling <laughs> to compete. What are the, some of the sort of areas that you're really excited about or focused on in particular? Sure. Aubrey's Emerging Market Funds focuses purely on opportunities, which relates to the consumers. Mm-hmm. During COVID and up until now, despite many challenges happening, we've seen rapid adoptions of new trends and attractive opportunities. So for instance, the implementation of live streaming on e-commerce provided another boost for growth during lockdown, and this continues in the current environment, and it happens much earlier than the West. Proya Cosmetics, a skincare company which I visited in Hangzhou when I was mm-hmm. in China, has established live streaming operations, and this has helped the companies navigating challenging period during COVID and building a trusting brand image. It is one of the leading skincare brands in China, and around 90% of their sales are conducted online now. Another example includes the adoption of electric vehicles, which the penetration rate has improved significantly in the past three years. The penetration rate today in China is close to 30% versus United States single digit. Mm, Additionally, EV sales in the first 10 months this year have already surpassed the total sales from last year. And this kind of growth does not just happen. What I mean by that is the support of government in providing attractive purchasing incentives, such as tax break on purchasing electric vehicles and more investment in EV infrastructure, have contributed to the growth and will keep the growth going. Mm-hmm. Companies such as BYD and Lee Autos are the leaders in this industry, and they have excellent products and efficient executions of their operations. Mm -hmm. These companies are currently trading at a significant discount to international players such as Tesla. I can just keep going with (laughs) industries and companies that I find attractive with good growth prospects. Mm. So for instance, education, tourism. However, what I'm really trying to say here is that there remains to be many excellent companies in China, which continues to deliver excellent fundamental performance. However, the market has derated many of the Chinese stocks, and it really takes time for the companies to regain confidence in this market. But I think it's definitely worth considering company-specific opportunities. That's super interesting, Camelia. Yes, and just to reiterate, and regular listeners will be aware of this, but any mention of individual companies or anything, that's not a recommendation from Camelia. She's using using that as illustrative of her investment process, the team's investment process. But Camelia, what, what about wider emerging markets? Are there any themes and trends that you're looking at in particular beyond China and emerging markets? Yeah, of course. We believe the story of China's growth in the past decades are also happening in other emerging countries, Mm -hmm. such as the story of urbanization, growing disposable income, and consumption upgrades. India, for instance, is an exciting market for us. Their Made in India initiative, which looked to increase manufacturers' contributions to GDP, is expected to boost economy and subsequently consumption. Infrastructure is also another area with large-scale investment planned in the next few years. And this will facilitate better roads, better railways to enhance the people's living qualities. Mm -hmm. And we've already seen the benefits of better infrastructure as the urbanization rate increase more. uh, High-quality property development are seen building alongside some of the outer ring of the cities in India. Mm -hmm. Property market are booming in 
India right now. Another country is Mexico, which is benefiting from onshoring, and we expect the country to see growth from more domestic manufacturing. Mexico is also doing another thing, which is to increase pension contribution from around 5% today to around 13% between this year to 2030. This is expected to provide an additional source of funding which will support the domestic investment in the long term. Many other countries are also having these kind of stories and they're also enjoying the manufacturing relocation out of China. For instance, BYD, as I just mentioned, they're setting up factories in Brazil, Hungary and Vietnam for their export business. So yeah, emerging market consumers remains a Yes, a good lots, opportunity. Lots going on. Lots going on. That That's super interesting, Camelia. And thank you. And I, I, so just a final couple of points from me. So first of all, remember, so Camelia and Aubrey Capital Management, they are an example of what we can bring to bear on your behalf, the expertise and specialism that we bring to bear on your behalf in our multi-asset class funds and portfolios, a mixture of both in-house expertise and outside ex- external exp- expertise. I'll try and get it out correctly this time around. So just remember, that's what gives you kind of investing superpowers is kind of specialists who can, like Camelia, go and actually visit, be on the ground and have sort of, you know, unique knowledge. The second point is that I think it's a reiteration of how important emerging markets are in that overall uh, exposure, carefully tailored exposure to the global economy. Remember not to get too focused with if you're excited about AI or any of the other incoming technological breakthroughs. Do not invest too narrowly in these ideas. If past is prologue, then the gains from these breakthroughs will be often quite far away from the initial site of breakthrough, both geographically and sectorally. So that means global diversified exposure because the next big idea or indeed the prime beneficiaries of that could literally come from anywhere in the world. So that's why you want to have the world on the side of your savings rather than just some recently successful part of it. Finally, I don't think there's too much in terms of markets beyond what's happened in China so far this week. Nothing definitive has changed in terms of incoming news flow and data. The narrative really still is, uh, you know, we're being bludgeoned by 2024 outlook documents in the industry at the moment. So everyone's having their dusting off their crystal balls and having a go at it. And there is still this debate, which has been going on all year, about whether or not there's going to be a recession next year. Uh, Again, for normal individuals who have better things to do, I hope that's most of you, the key is not to pay too much attention to this uh, debate in binary fashion. Whether or not there's a recession next year in the US or even world economy will be almost irrelevant in terms of your chances of hitting your long-term investment goals. That will be driven, as we repeatedly say, by the trends in productivity globally. That's what will drive your investment returns if you're taking any equity ownership or other ownership at all. So therefore, focus on the medium-term prospects for productivity, not who will be in the White House next year or indeed whether there'll be a recession. So with that, thank you, Camelia, very much indeed. Thank you, listeners, as usual, and we'll speak to you next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.